The reading is from Colossians 3, 1 to 11. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at Colossians 3. So if you've got the text, keep it open in front of you. Our Father God, please, please, would you give us tonight uh, your attitude to sin and your desire for holiness. Please plant those in us for your glory. Amen. Last year, a chap called Addie Goodchild, a factory worker from Hereford, won uh, the small amount of 71 million on the Euro millions. There's him looking suitably chuffed with a glass of champagne. Uh, People often say, oh, if I won a big amount on the lottery, it wouldn't change me at all. Uh, He was asked that at the press conference and he said, uh, excuse the language, but I'm quoting him, it bloody well will change my life. I'm going to travel the world and buy a big house with a swimming pool. Uh, He's a single man who was asked, do you think it makes you more attractive? He says, no, but it certainly makes my wallet more attractive to the ladies. Um, I rather liked him. Now, winning 71 million is far too big an amount of money for it to not change you. I mean, just think about it. Everything in your life would be different if 71 million landed in your bank account tomorrow. Lockdown would be a whole lot more comfortable and probably wouldn't be spent in London, would it? Putting your trust in Jesus Christ is a far bigger deal than winning a few million on the Euro millions. To have all your sins forgiven completely, to have your old life with its guilt and shame and the pervasive fear of death buried with Christ, to be given new resurrection with Christ, a new life now that we share with him as sons and daughters of the king of the universe, and to have the promise, the unbreakable certain promise of paradise forever with God, to have those things, it's too big a thing to come to know Christ for it to not change you. In one sense, that's, that was the message we saw last week as we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Let's remind ourselves. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
You've been raised. If you trust in Jesus, you have been raised. You now live with Jesus in heaven. That's where you really are. And you, you don't need to achieve a certain level of, of spiritual holiness for that to be true or become a minister. You, you just come to Jesus and it's true. And it's a transforming truth. See, the power for living a godly life comes from knowing that I'm in Christ now and setting my heart, my mind on things above, on that heavenly reality. That's where the power lies. But holiness in the daily detail of ordinary life doesn't just happen by magic. You don't just look at Christ and ta-da, wow, I'm suddenly such a nice husband and, and just a, a godly colleague. This is incredible. No, if, as we thought last week, uh, new life in Jesus is the engine that provides the power, but we've still got to steer the car. We've still got to determine the direction. And in the rest of chapter 3, Paul unpacks what it looks like, how to steer, what it looks like to live on earth as a citizen of heaven, as one whose life is in heaven. It's not traveling the world and buying a big house like a lottery winner. It's killing sin and loving others. And we'll think next week about loving others. This week in verses 1 to 11, Paul tells us, look, if we are in Christ, we are to wage war against the sin in our lives. We're to be ruthless killers. Of course, important to remember when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, uh, war against sin, it's nothing like what happened in Nice. And that's not just a, a sort of modern interpretation, sanitizing Christianity. There's never been a doctrine of jihad in Christianity. The fight against sin, the killing sin, is sin, not people, and it's my sin, not yours. Very, very important. We're clear on that. Okay, look, uh, we're just going to have two points. Uh, the, the big thing, you must put to death your sins from verses 5 to 9, and you are being renewed in the image of Christ, 9 to 11. Verses 5 to 9. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. The simple message, if you trust in Christ, you must put to death your sins. And I just want to think about those three key terms. You must put to death your sins. Each of those. We'll look uh, through these verses under that. Firstly, you must, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. In other words, the thing that has to follow, if, if your life is hidden with Christ in heaven, then it just has to follow that you put to death what's earthly and sinful. Now, it's not like there are standard Christians, and then there are super spiritual Christians who are fighting and putting to death their sin. Hey, you, can I put it like this? You cannot call yourself a Christian if you're not killing your sins. It's a moral, it's an objection that sort of, I guess, is in the heads of lots of us at that point. I imagine a few of us did breathe in and feel a little bit nervous when I said, you cannot 
call yourself a Christian if you're not killing your sins. Because, hang on, the heart of the gospel is that God saved us not because we were killing sins and being good people. The heart of the gospel is that we're counted right by God, adopted as his children, we're forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross, not because of what we do in our lives. The message of the gospel is what God did, not what we do. Yes, absolutely. We've been learning that throughout Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 6, the gospel is the message of God's grace. God freely gives us eternal life and salvation. Chapter 1, verse 22, God has in the past reconciled you and dealt completely with your sins if you trust in Jesus. Chapter 2, 13, when we were dead in sin, God nailed our sins to the cross and has made us alive in Christ. All has been done. So surely to, to say you must kill your sins, undermines that message of grace. Well, not at all, when you think about it. When I tell my boys, you must say thank you and you must not hit each other, there is no suggestion that their place in the family depends on whether they obey me. They're in our family forever. But rather, as part of our family... I want them to obey the wise and sensible rules that make family life enjoyable and bearable for all of us. And the same is true for the Christian. Our place in God's family, well, that's not dependent on our behavior. It's not up for grabs. It's ours by grace. Jesus has done everything necessary to win us an unbreakable eternity with God. But God gives us wise, loving rules for our good and his glory and calls us to live like that. And actually, in one sense, the bigger point is this. The Christ whose life we share, the Christ who's paid for our sins, is a pure, holy, sinless Christ. Now, Paul is not contradicting the gospel of grace in these verses. He's pointing out the simple logic. You can't come to live in relationship with a holy God while clinging to foul sin that God hates. You just can't, logically. I mean, imagine, um, you have to run with me on this one, you decide you don't want to spend the next month um, on your own in your house, so you fire off a quick advert um, for some new housemates, and you accept the first two people who respond, and lo and behold, it's Dr. Martin Luther King, and it's the Grand Wizard of the KKK. That is not going to work. You can't, you can't welcome into your house to live in a happy, harmonious house uh, a man who stands for the equality of the races and love for all people and a man who lives for white supremacy and hates black people. You, you can't be friends with both of those people. You can't have both of them living in your house. You have to choose. We can hardly claim... Oh, God, you're welcome in my life and at the same time be wallowing in moral filth. If I love God, then I'll hate what disgusts and angers him. Great Puritan theologian John Owen wrote uh, a brilliant book called The Mortification of Sin. The title comes from Colossians 3.5 and Romans 8.7. Mortification is just the old word for put to death. And Owen's books are known for long, complex, intellectually demanding arguments, but he states the principle here with brilliant, simple clarity. Should be a picture of good old John Owen. There you go. 
you must leave your sins or your God. It's very clear. That's the choice. You can't cling to God whilst clinging to sin. And if we have been raised with Christ, then we will, we must, we must leave our sins. We must, uh, secondly, put to death, put to death. Uh, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. What does it mean to put to death uh, the sinful behavior and attitudes in our lives? Well, let's begin with what it can't mean, what it doesn't mean. It can't mean play with them. We indulge them, feel no shame about them because they're acceptable in our culture. It can't mean ignore them so long as they're not visible to other people. It can't mean fight hard to sort out the big stuff, but you know what? Don't sweat the little things. It can't mean, look, don't worry about the sins that are more or less a blind eye acceptable in your group of friends. It can't mean confess how wretched you are and own your failings to your small group or a couple of friends, but don't take any concrete steps to change. Put to death means take active, aggressive steps to end the existence of the sin in your life. You choke off the source of their life. When you kill an enemy, you seek to extinguish the threat so that they can't be a danger to you again. Now to do this, You've got to have a right view of sin. It's very, very difficult, you see, to kill what you love and enjoy. It's a whole lot easier to kill a cockroach than a puppy. But the problem comes because many of us have sin or certain sins in the puppy category rather than the cockroach, or to be more accurate, the cancer category. We need to learn, first of all, to view sin the way God views sin. Look at verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sin brings God's wrath. When was the last time you actually felt yourself shake with rage? Righteous rage. Well, I wonder if for many of us it was this week the news from Nice, innocent worshippers slaughtered like animals in a church. And worse still, this is Christians being targeted in revenge for the fact that a secular leader uh, spoke about defending secular values and the response was the slaughter of Christians. That made me absolutely so angry when I read what happened. That's how God feels about sin. And not just some sins, but my pet sins. That's how he feels about those. The sins I excuse and and minimize and, and play with. And the reason God feels that way is because God sees sin as it truly is. God is perfect in his knowledge and perfect in his judgments. And he hates sin because... Sin is utterly, completely hateful. 
He sees what sin is and he sees what sin does. It dehumanizes. You realize every time you sin, you become a little bit less human. It is ugly. It corrodes, it destroys, and it always, always, always leads towards death. And no matter how sweet it tastes, it is fatal poison. And so we should hate it and we must kill it. Now, I can't tell you what it will definitely mean for you to kill the particular sins that are dangerously alive in your heart. I can tell you some things it might mean. I can suggest some things to help you work it out. So for someone here um, who was here a couple of years ago, it meant having no smartphone. They were losing battles with internet porn and they got fed up with uh, resolving to, to try harder and talking endlessly about that and they just threw the smartphone. That's killing sin. For someone struggling with greed, it might mean cancelling the subscriptions that feed the addiction and the longings and giving more to the gospel. Signing up for, for prayer emails from organizations like Open Doors who support impoverished, persecuted Christians so that my head and my heart are filled a little bit less with what I want and think I need and, and more with the genuine, urgent needs of others. For someone struggling with envy and jealousy, it may well mean cancelling Instagram and Facebook. You've got to work it out. It's something that we can do together is talk with one or two others, what might it mean for me to put to death my sins? Now, at the risk of sounding banal, um, any honest question will, will tell you, though, at this point, that putting sin to death is a bit like a cheap horror movie. Uh, in a, you, know, you know how it is with the cheap horror movies. The, the bad guy always somehow comes back to life. There's 15 sequels. It's, it's kind of like that with sin. It doesn't just die and you're done. <laughs> The presence of sin will remain with us throughout our lives. And the truth is that for most of us, some particular sins will come back day after day after day. Every day of our earthly pilgrimage, we'll be putting them to death. And so Paul's point here when he says put to death is not, there is a particular technique that if you get it right, the sin will be gone forever. Now his point is sin is so lethal that even though it'll be with you for the rest of your life, you are to take concerted, decisive action to kill its influence and try to get rid of it completely. You must put to death. And lastly, from verses 5 to 9, your sins. It's interesting. Do you notice that Paul doesn't just leave it at whatever belongs to your earthly nature in verse 5? He, he carries on and lists specific sins. Sexual immorality impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, slander, filthy language, lies. Now, it's really important that he does this because as he does it, he demonstrates to us that sin and what counts as sin is not culturally determined. He names particular sins in God's timeless word which means that the sins he identifies to the first century church in Colossae remain sins for a 21st century church in London or Beijing or Tehran. What counts as sin is not culturally determined. It's not up to us to decide. God's eternal unchanging word is the only, the only place that tells us what sin is and isn't. 
Now, these aren't the only sins. The Bible names a number of others. And it doesn't mean that only things explicitly named as sin are sinful. Uh, There are lots of things which, although not specifically named, are clear and obvious implications. So racism is never named as such in the Bible, but it's blindingly obvious from the Bible's teaching about humanity that racism is absolutely sinful. Likewise, internet pornography is not named in the Bible, nor is road rage, but it's blindingly obvious that they are sinful from what the rest of the Bible says. But we are to trust God. It is he who determines what is right and wrong, what is sinful. Not me, not my preferences, and not my culture. It also shows us, as he names particular sins, I think it shows us that we are to fight specific sins. You know, you will never grow in holiness by fighting my sin. I only grow in holiness when I fight my lust, my pride, my greed. My selfishness, my bitterness, my enjoyment of gossip, my indifference to the suffering of those who look different. He only fights sin when I fight particular sins. And so for each of us, the question is, what particular specific sins am I seeking to kill? Because, well, the risk of things getting awkward, if you haven't got an answer for that, you can't claim you're fighting sin at all. You must put to death your sins. Sobering words. The hope comes in verses 9 to 11. You are being renewed in the image of Christ. Hard work putting to death sin, and so we need these words very much. We'll start at the beginning of verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We are to work hard putting our sins to death, and we... Have hope as we do so because God is at work in us and through us. Already we share in in Christ's life. And that life is flowing down already into us from heaven. God is at work by his spirit, bringing the reality of the heavenly life into the experience of our earthly existence. If you like, God is like the wind. He is relentlessly blowing us across the sea towards the glorious, godly, restored, perfect character we will have in heaven. Our part is to learn to sail. And the more we work at it, the more skilled we become, the more we'll grow and enjoy seeing the effect of his power making us more like Christ. But it is God who provides the wind that will drive us inevitably to perfection. Verse 11 then is extraordinary. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. All the great divisions of humanity, Jew, Gentile, racial identity, circumcised, uncircumcised, our our religious background, barbarian and Scythian, cultural background, lack of culture with the barbarians, slave, free, our economic status, all the different places we might ground our identity. 
in our culture, I guess, we're, we're encouraged to ground our identity in our gender, our sexuality, our ethnicity or nationality, our educational background, our accent, our job. But in Christ outranks them all. That is the new you, the true you. You are in Christ. And it is only possible to sin when I forget who I am. Sadly, Satan specializes in identity theft. But every time we sin, it's because we've allowed him to steal our identity, to rob us of the truth and blind us. And we've begun to believe again that we're defined by our sinful desires or that we are hopelessly outpowered by our sinful urges. But in Christ is more fundamental than any other identity we may wear. Gender, race, sexuality, education. And in Christ is more powerful than any sinful desire. I mean, look, he lists here sexual desire, greed, anger. In Christ is more powerful. That is objective truth. The question is, will I believe it and act on it in this moment? I wonder if you realize how hopeful this passage is. I mean, in one sense, it's uh, kill your sin or be killed by it. But actually, it's a very hopeful passage. Uh, Usually, as we read this list of sins, we get so focused on the guilt we feel for the sins we're wallowing in and the pitiful progress we're making as Christians that we, we miss the hope. But the hope is this. The Bible commands us to kill sin, to change, because change It's not just possible, it's inevitable. You are in Christ. And right now, his resurrection power is in your life, working through you. And your future, well, there's no question, you will be perfect one day. That is your inevitable destiny. Your identity is in Christ, your destiny is with Christ. It is such a hopeful thing, so put your sins to death. Now, getting rid of sin is uh, not the sum total of God's desire for your life. It's, it's half the story, half the battle. We'll see in, in verses 12 to 17 the positive, uh, the beautiful fruit that God wants to grow. But in this passage, it's about weeding the ground, getting rid of the foul, clogging, cloying weeds that stop us developing the fruit and flowers God wants to see in us. But God's restoration project has begun already. Verse 10, he's... And nine, he's taken off the old and put on the new. But that garden will never be beautiful and fruitful until the choking poisonous weeds are rooted out and destroyed. Have you um, ever been to Barry's boot camp or one of those uh, uh, sort of cardio intense flogging sessions? Or if not, um, do you remember playing footy or rugby on a really wet, muddy day, and you get to the end, and you're just a gopping, minging mess. Your clothes are just drenched in sweat or mud and just disgusting. You peel them off, and you get into the shower at the gym or wherever, uh, and you just have a, a just fantastic, glorious cleansing hour. Somebody else is paying the water bill. It's just absolutely wonderful. And then you put on fresh, clean clothes, and it's beautiful. That is what God has done for us in Christ. He has stripped off the foul filth of our sinful self. He's washed us clean in Christ and he's given us new clothes, a new lifestyle to wear. 
And every time we sin, it's like we open that the hazmat bag you've got in your gym locker uh, and we reach in and pull out that foul, fetid, disgusting, sweaty garments and we put them back on. Why would we do that? God calls us to get rid of them, not to wear them. Look, we're going into a month of lockdown now, at least. Let me say this very clearly. If you fail to put sin to death during this month, you'll be no less forgiven on the 1st of December than you are today. Jesus has paid for your sins in full. But you cannot cling to God and sin at the same time. And so for the honour of God and the glory of your Saviour, and for your good and your joy, put your sins to death. It's a chance afterwards when we, uh, when we head outside to, to talk and pray with one another. Why not talk, pray with one or two trusted people? What are the sins that this lockdown, oh, I don't know what else I'll be doing, sourdough starters, getting fit, whatever it is. What sins am I going to try to kill? What will I do for the eternal glory of Jesus? No one else may see. He will. Let's pray. Father God, please would you help us to see sin as you see it and to see Christ as he truly is and so to hate our sin. Please would we leave our sin and not our God. Amen.